Can you guess which soprano's musical and dramatic talents led to her being hailed as La Divina? That might be too easy. So, can you name either of the tenors that she sang with in the Met's 1965 production of Tosca? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. If you guessed that the legendary Maria Callas was hailed as La Divina, then you are correct. And in 1965, her Cavaradosis at the Met were Franco Corelli and Richard Tucker. Now, can you guess who her most famous onstage duo partner was? You will have to keep listening to find out. I'm Naomi Baratera, and today we continue our exploration of iconic opera duos with Met radio commentator Ira Siff. So we're going to begin our opera duos part two with one of the immortal pairings in opera, Kirsten Flagstad and Lawrence Melchior. You know, Melchior arrived at the Met in 1926. It was almost a full decade before uh, Flagstad. And valuable, though he was before her debut, it was the combination of the two that captured the imagination of the public and made the tenor a superstar. In spite of their great popularity, or maybe because of it, it was actually with these two box office attractions that the Met general manager, Edward Johnson, collided most often, especially with Flagstad. When Johnson came on board, you see, he inherited from the previous general manager, Julio Gatti Cazaza, great discovery, this Kirsten Flagstad, but he also inherited a lack of foresight concerning the diva. Flagstad had been heard in Europe some six years earlier by this Met philanthropist and board president, Otto Kahn. And uh, he was so impressed that he contacted the company's European agent, Eric Simon, who approached Flagstad requesting reviews and photos and such. Incredibly, she didn't respond. Flagstad was engaged to her second husband at that time, a wealthy businessman, uh, Henry Johansson, and she was not ambitious by nature. And she figured, well, the Met's not going to be interested in reviews from Norway. So she never answered. But in 1934, Frida Leider, who was the leading Wagnerian soprano of the day and at the Met, decided to leave the Met and return to Germany, leaving the Met desperate for a replacement. And by now, word of Flagstad's few forays into Wagner had gotten around. So Simon approached her again. And uh, she agreed to go to St. Moritz and sing for the great conductor, Arthur Bodansky, uh, who was the major Wagner conductor at the Met at that time, and for the general manager, Gotti. Uh, there was a gifted coach and conductor, Hermann Weigert, and he was going to play the audition. So he ran the soprano through her paces as she sight-read parts of Valkyrie and the entire immolation scene from De Goethe Demerung. And kind of annoyed, Weigert said, to, don't you know anything by heart? You know, maybe the ho-yo to ho? 
So she launched into that, and as she said in her memoirs, Weigert fell off the piano bench. <laughs> uh, when Bodansky and Gatti heard her, she was engaged on the spot, but the room was heavily carpeted and draped, so they had no idea about the size of Flagstad's voice, and this became apparent in the first rehearsal that she sang at the Met the following January 15th. It was so startling that Bodansky left the orchestra pit and went out into the house to listen to her, and by now, the buzz was around the house and people were flooding into the auditorium to hear this voice. Gatti, unsure of this new Flagstad singer, had not engaged her with the usual contract for multiple seasons. After Kirsten Flagstad was discovered on February 2nd, 1935, she became the hottest artist on the concert and recital stage uh, of the time. And the Metropolitan had only contracted her for one season. This mess was inherited by Edward Johnson, who took over the Met at that point, and it began a series of bitter negotiations uh, between Flagstad and the House. NBC Artist Services handled Flagstad's concert and recital engagements, but nobody was handling her opera engagements. And so Flagstad and her husband uh, were kind of bitterly negotiating all of that with the Met by themselves. When her husband had to return to Norway on business, Flagstad inserted her piano accompanist, Edwin MacArthur, into the equation, acting as a kind of ad hoc manager for her. MacArthur finally sorted out some dates with the Met, but the effect on Flagstad's relations with Edward Johnson was not good. And this planted a seed for future difficulties after the war. In the meantime, Flagstad was, was adding Wagner roles to her repertoire at an astonishing pace. In fact, she noted in her memoir that she was sometimes accused of being static on stage, but early on she was forced to memorize her parts so quickly that she was actually listening to the other performers on stage to find out the plot of the opera she was singing. <laughs> Reviews of the time, however, suggest no whiff of the neophyte. She is praised to the skies for each new assumption. With Melchior under Berdansky, there were performances of unimaginable beauty. The tenor by that time had matured from an indifferent actor with a remarkable voice into a real artist who could float soft head tones or fill out a remarkable, full, incredible sound with incredible stamina as well. And uh, their, their record of performances is astonishing. The statistics include well, the pair sang nine consecutive Tristan broadcasts in six years. In February of 1937, Flagstad sang Tristan, Lohengrin, and Goethe-Demmerung in three days, with Melchior partnering her twice. Well, as the late Robert Tuggle, the director of the Met Archives, said to me, Wagner didn't ruin those voices. <laughs> Flagstad and Melchior became friends, but during a bridge game, they began feuding. <laughs> Not about the bridge game. Flagstad had never needed or used a publicist. She began to notice a column that kept turning up in all the papers with the headline, Who's the Real Prima Donna of the Met? And the, the column always pitted her against Lottie Lehmann. Lehmann was a good friend of Melchior. Both artists employed the same publicist, Constance Hope. And Flagstad's remarks about other artists exploiting her name to get press became more and more and more insistent during the card game, and the evening ended with a lot of tension. Now, while she expected this all to blow over, uh, Melchior took offense, and the friendship was terminated. 
The public was unaware because the onstage lovers remained quite passionate. But Flagstad requested another tenor for her Fidelio at the Met. She refused Melchior for her 25th anniversary as a singer, a performance of Goethe Damerung, uh, with a party afterwards to which she invited every single member of the Met Company except Melchior. And our loss, even today, was that the disillusion of plans by HMV for complete Wagner operas with the two of them. While the chill eventually thawed, the friendship never fully recovered, and this came back to haunt Flagstad after the war when she needed friends. Now, on Thanksgiving Day, November 23rd, 1939, Flagstad arrived in Chicago for performances only to discover that her beloved conductor, Arthur Badansky, had died. Uh, Badansky's heir apparent was the young Erich Leinsdorf, who made his debut the previous season conducting Valkyrie. Flagstad had other plans for her accompanist, Edwin MacArthur, who had begun by then to conduct. And she teamed up with Melchior to protest Leinsdorf's appointment, even to the press, quite publicly. Uh, Edward Johnson retaliated. He wrote um, to the press, there are some old boats in the company who have no competition for their roles and would rather be dictator. And in the short term, Johnson won the battle and Leinsdorf inherited the position. But not long after that, when Johnson failed to sign a contract with Flagstad by the deadline for performances coming up, she blackmailed him. And Edwin MacArthur made his company debut in Boston with Tristan, more significantly even his Met House debut on the occasion of Flagstad's 100th Isolde on February 17, 1941. And this time, she invited Melchior to share the occasion. Aptly, our first excerpt today will be the final portion of the love duet from Tristan with Edwin MacArthur conducting Kirsten Flagstad and Lord Melchior.
Our next uh, selection features uh, a couple who had one of the happiest marriages in uh, opera, and they created some of the most vivid dramatic characterizations on stage in the post-war era. Uh, Virginia Tsiani sang Violetta more times than any soprano of record, 648 performances, a portrayal she brought in her only Met appearances in 1967. She was also great Lucia. In fact, when I, uh, I did an article for Opera News called The Greatest Voice You Ever Heard, Richard Bonning named Zayani as the greatest voice he ever heard and the greatest Lucia above his wife, Joan Sutherland. I hope he had a hotel room for that evening. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, shifting later in her career to uh, more heavy lyric spinto uh, roles, Zayani was a fantastic man on Lascaux and Tosca and unforgettable uh, in the Consul, the Nazi's opera at the Spoleto Festival. In 1956, Zayani was singing Cleopatra in Giulio Cesare at La Scala, and in those days, the role of Cesare was always sung by a bass. It was before countertenors took over Baroque roles. And in this case, it was the towering basso, Niccolo Rossi Lameni. Zayani and Rossi had met previously, but only on stage. He had played her aged uncle Giorgio in I Puritani, and uh, she'd never seen him, never seen him without age makeup. So all of a sudden, Cesare comes on stage for the rehearsal, and he's this guy in his 30s uh, who three weeks later proposes marriage to her. And uh, they had a very happy marriage, and he's passed away. She lives in Palm Beach, now in West Palm Beach, and still teaches a bit, and she's 92. At the Met, uh, Rossi sang uh, Mephistopheles and Don Giovanni in 1953-54. But our selection today, shedding their great tragic personas, they're going to sing Adina and Dulcamara in the duet from uh, Donizetti's Le Lisier d'Amore, recorded in 1958. It's the personification of perfect recitative, of timing, that all but lost thing called charm. As Dulcamara tries to sell Adina to Lelizier d'Amore, we win uh, over Nemorino for her. She says, I don't need that. I just give him the right glance and he's mine. Virginia Tsiani and Niccolo Rossi in the duet from Lelizier d'Amore. <laughs> Thank you. 
Another pair not married offstage, but often deeply in love on stage, were the wonderful Leonie Riesenick and John Vickers. And again, in the spirit of hearing something different today, in these classes over the years, many, many times, we've done Wagner and we've done Riesenick and we've done Vickers, and I've played Zygmunt and Sieglinde over and over because it is riveting. But we're going to hear something a little bit different today. We're going to turn to the Nile scene duet from Verdi's Aida. We'll be hearing Riesenick with her other duo person, George London, next week in Wagner. Uh, and, um, you know, Riesenick was a famous Aida in Germany in the 50s in German, uh, and Vickers emerged in the late 50s, and they kind of came to stardom at the same time, and they were both big stars in Wagner, and she also in Strauss, but they both loved to sing Italian roles as well. Their 1960 pairing in Aida was a huge success, and it was meant to be recorded by RCA, wasn't. More about that later. Over the years in these classes, we've heard from them in the German roles, but today we're going to hear the whole first section of the Aida Rodimus Nile scene duet in which Aida persuades Rodimus to flee with her away from Egypt and uh, away from the racial divide that they face and to be together in this paradise that, that he wants to take her to and she wants to take him to. Verdi gives Rodimus his usual heroic entrance music goes with character until with kind of slithery chromatic figures, 
uh, and soft pianissimo lines, Aida seduces him into agreeing to go with her. Both singers are caught here in their prime, doing what they can to scale their enormous voices down to suit Verdi's markings in the score for piano singing, and doing so with impressive grace in repertoire to which they were definitely not born vocally. Uh, Riesenick and Vickers both scored at the Met in these roles, but oddly never together. So we're going to the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco to hear them together in it. This was recorded by someone in the audience in 
We're going to remain with AIDA and move ahead three years and across the country back to the Met, December 7th, 1963, for two artists who were in this rep to the manner born as they were in all their Verdi collaborations, which included Paolo and Mascara, Trovatore, Forza del Destino, and of course, Aida. Uh, we're gonna hear a snippet from the tomb scene, the end of the opera, that exemplifies why. I will never forget this 1963 broadcast. I had just seen Leontine Price and Carlo Bergonzi in this opera a few days before and was swept away with his vocal and textual poetry, his masterful control vocally, even doing the written morendo, this pianissimo that dies to nothing at the end of the B-flat and his entrance aria, Celeste Aida, which almost no one could do, only he and Corelli, and ever. And uh, it was just also so authentically Italian, never mind that he looked like an accountant dressed up as an Egyptian for Halloween. Um, didn't matter. Price was ravishing. She was not a great stage actress. She possessed two gestures, this one and this one. <laughs> I had just heard uh, Birgit Nielsen open the season in this production, and her voice was about twice as big as Leontine's. It didn't matter. What Price could do with the line, spinning top notes, and intensity of the drama within the voice was a miracle. The broadcast of the finale, O Terra Adio, uh, as the two died together, really says it all. And you will hear the voice of Rita Gore, who was the Amneris, intoning Pace Pace above the tomb in this performance. The Met Orchestra is led by Georg Scholte.
that time, in the early 60s, the Bel Canto revival, gun by Maria Callas in the 50s, was in full swing with Joan Sutherland and her husband, conductor Richard Bonning, reviving operas, restoring cutscenes from operas that we knew, like Lucia and Traviata, and discovering talent that they could use in their mission, like the soprano-turned-mezzo Marilyn Horn. And they did many concerts together. But on stage, there were really only two operas that they performed together, Norma and Semiramide. And at the Met, only Norma. We've all heard them sing the famous duet, Mira o Norma. Today, we're going to hear most of their extended Act Two duet from Rossini's Semiramide. At the time of this recording, 1965, Rossini's Barbara of Seville was the only opera of his regularly heard uh, anywhere. La Cenerentola in L'Italiana in Algeri ran a distant second place, but none of his serious dramatic operas, as opposed to his comedies, were heard almost anywhere. They were trucked out once for a special occasion and then buried again. And Bonning saw a great vehicle for Joan in Rossini's final opera for Italy, Semiramide, before Rossini moved to Paris. And he just needed the right heroic mezzo for the pants role of Arsace. Enter Marilyn Horn. As those of you who saw Semiramide at the Met this season know, the plot is so convoluted and our time today is so limited that suffice it to say, Semiramide has been in love with the young officer Arsace, who in turn loves a girl closer to his own age, Adzema. In the course of events, Semiramide discovers that she's been in love with her own son, long in exile, whom she thought had been murdered along with her late husband. The two are horrified and joyous when they discover that they are mother and son. Arsace is a bit distressed, though, because he discovers that it was his mother who plotted the murder of his father. Um, now they've found each other, and uh, filial devotion wins out, uh, temporarily anyway, over uh, revenge. Uh, they reconcile, Arsace choosing filial devotion uh, uh, over revenge on behalf of his father, and along the way they demonstrate how Rossini's operas explore imaginative musical construction while offering the gifted uh, singers he had at the time, the first Semiramide was his wife, the great soprano Isabella Colbran, uh, who excited uh, audiences with her control of florid music, like Sutherland, sang only his dramas, never his comedies, and many of them were composed for her. Uh, he gave her, and he gives the singers in this duet, endless opportunities for vocal display. So we're gonna hear uh, Sutherland and Horn in this duet from Rossini's uh, Semiramide.
And while we're uh, with Belcanto, we're going to have our one video excerpt of today. Uh, and this one personifies the effect of the Belcanto revival. The biggest problem in the 50s and 60s was that finding male singers who could even approximate the extraordinary techniques uh, like those owned by the two principal tenors that Rossini wrote for in Naples, Nozari and David. Both of these guys had phenomenal coloratura technique. Nozari excelled in rapid fire passages uh, and David in heroic leaps. Both had a secure high C and above. Of course, in those days, the tenors mixed uh, the chest and head voice to sing the high C. The, today, we sing all of those notes in pure low register, which is more difficult and more demanding on the voice. Um, for his opera Otello, Rossini wrote a number of tenor roles. He had all these tenors he had to write for in Naples, so he created their five tenor roles. There were six in his Armida. Um, and uh, in this version of the Otello story, the two rivals for Desdemona's love are Rodrigo and Otello. And unlike Verdi's version, in which all the machinations are stealthily accomplished, here, despite Iago's jealousy, Rodrigo is very open about his love for Desdemona, who is secretly married in this version to Otello. The two men have a face-off duet in Act Two that was constructed by Rossini to also be a vocal face-off for his two-star tenors. In this performance, we have a um, one and only time pairing of Javier Camarena as Rodrigo and Lawrence Brownlee as Otello. Uh, both scale the heights written to high C and even D in this duet. Uh, it's interesting to hear these two vocal techniques which contrast slightly uh, Camarena depends for his rapid coloratura more on division, fluctuations between the pitches. Brownlee has been trained to sing fast coloratura with more connective tissue, more legato in his singing. Both of them are sensational. So this is a live performance of the Otello Rodrigo duet with these two guys. <laughs> Why 
1957, Callas recorded two Puccini roles she had never sung, Manon Lescaut, and in 1956, she recorded Bohème. Both of these are brilliant documents of Callas in roles she never sang on stage and yet embodied. Perhaps the most startling is her Mimi, a role one associates strictly with Tibaldi in that era. The Callas of Medea and Norma, ferocious and torrential in delivery, could never have sung Mimi, really? For me, Mimi's death scene with Callas and Di Stefano is one of the most beautifully sung, one of the most tenderly interpreted, extraordinary excerpts of Puccini on record. The delicacy of Callas's line readings and the gentle caring of Di Stefano's Rodolfo never failed to touch me, as of course does the very end when he cries out her name and Puccini hits us with that fabulous melody. It always chokes me up. The remainder of the superb cast includes Anna Maffo as Musetta and Rolando Panarai as Marcello. Antonino Votto is conducting during Tullio Serafin's banishment. If you were to take a score of Bohème and open it and look at this scene and follow it, Callas is the only singer on record who follows every single one of Puccini's markings to the letter. And then, of course, she makes the interpretation her own. So here's the finale of La Bohème.
fatto fretta ecco il coro di
That was Ira Sif in the second part of his series titled Opera Duos. Don't miss the final episode of this series coming to you next week. To keep up on all things opera, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for at Met Opera Guild on all platforms. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.